welcome to another episode of Reboot Ed, the podcast where we talk big ideas and issues in education and hardly ever come up with any answers. I'm Andrew Schwab, your co-host, and I am joined by... Mike Volmert. How's it going, Mike? It's going great. The Scamp Restoration marches on. Uh, the other uh, hashtag quarantine projects are... are uh, in various design stages. I got two guitars that I'm building now. So, yeah. You're, you're more busy than you were before retirement happened. It's like every, every time I talk to you, you've got like multiple things going on. <laughs> I, I could not possibly have done all this stuff when I had a real job. Well, it must be nice. It is nice. I highly recommend retirement. I'm working on it. A okay. few, few more years to go. There you go. Got to finish that doctorate first. Uh, who do we have today to talk with? Very excited. Oh man, today we have Dr. Laura Spencer, um, educator par excellence from down in the San Diego area. Um, Laura, I, I, um, I can't keep track of everything you do. You are amazing. <laughs> Thank uh, you. So you're, you're a tech innovation director for Elite Academy, which is a independent study charter school is that right um, yes i'm director of academic innovation for elite academic academy we are a k-12 independent study charter school in southern california public charter school and then you also work with uh university of san diego you're an correct adjunct professor you're on the board for q uh and i just learned that you're an uh, a desert off-roading enthusiast. <laughs> that is me. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for coming on. Um, you've got my pleasure. You've got some expertise that in these crazy times um, seems seems really really important. Um, working with kids in an independent study uh, mode for um for the time that you have which includes time without a global pandemic pandemic being a problem right um we've got schools virtually everywhere now that are wrestling with that same sort of distance learning model so thanks for being on um i'd like to dig in with you about how you view that world what it would take uh, for schools to prepare teachers for that kind of world, this distance learning thing that we've got. Um, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about your vision of what happens as we move kids back into a blended or a fully included environment after experiencing um, being at home and working distance too. So um, maybe talk a little bit about how you've approached working with teachers and students at Elite Academy um, and whether there's any crossover um, for teachers dealing with distance learning. Sure. How much time do you have? <laughs> you got all the time you need, but uh, typically people don't want to listen more than about yeah. an hour. Yeah. You know, the, the thing is for us, um, just to back up a little bit, you know, I, I think when students come to us, they come to us because traditional education wasn't working for them. You know, whether it's uh, because of academic reasons or life reasons, we have some kids who want to be athletes or actors, we have some who are just struggling to find success. So 
when they come to us, I think one of the first things is that we realize that we can't then approach school from a traditional method. So you won't see at Elite uh, a bunch of students logging on at 9 o'clock for English and then 10 o'clock for math, etc. It's very personalized. And I think that's one of the key differences between what a lot of maybe you know independent study schools have already figured out that traditional schools are struggling to learn. Is that what works in brick and mortar doesn't work when you are online or when you're trying to just connect with kids remotely. I think... So, Teachers figured that out sort of last spring, but I don't think school traditional schools really have a grasp on how that actually can work. It's right. really hard in my experience for teachers to kind of make that paradigm shift. Well, and I think what's sad is that some teachers have figured it out, like you said, and now it seems like we're moving a step backwards because what I'm seeing with the requirements for attendance and such from the state as I'm seeing a lot of schools now putting out plans that, that mimic what was happening pre-pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was looking at um, you know some, some big districts in Southern California that were basically putting out, you know, students will be working for six hours a day and, and here's what the schedule looks like. And it's just, it's just something that we've found is, is not successful. You know, we um, spend a lot of time with students trying to teach them, uh, I don't even wanna say study skills, but maybe time management, um, focusing on agency, focusing on, you know, what do you need to find your success and then how do you get the support and the resources you need to make that happen. So they might be learning for an hour and they might get to a point where they say, um, you know, I don't understand how this works. And there are opportunities right then to say, I need help from a tutor and to be able to log on and ask for a time to meet with a tutor and have a tutor help them with the subject. So it's, it's very, again, like self-driven. It's not at 10 o'clock, you're going to learn about fractions, whether you need it or not. But it could be that a student says, I, I need help with fractions Wednesday at 4 p.m. And we'll have a tutor available to help them Wednesday at 4 p.m. So that they can keep going on, on their path towards success. So you use the word tutor. Are those traditionally teachers? Are they, what, what's a tutor? Yeah, they uh, actually are. We have, those are our, our content expert teachers. So it's the math teacher, the person who's credentialed in that. And we say tutor because I think it, it takes a little bit of the pressure off. You know, yeah. to say this is somebody that's here to help you versus I don't get this and I have to ask the teacher for assistance. We also have teachers of record so that, you know, your homeroom teacher that's really there to cheerlead and push you on and, and help you find that success. And then we have our, our content expert teachers that can provide that really particular assistance that you might need. It's, just a, it's just a different content. way of thinking. Yeah, so I, we have, I love it. Yeah, um, we have a couple different methods for that. So, um we have partnered with a curriculum provider for our virtual students. So we have, uh, we actually have different programs. So we have a fully virtual program uh, where students take all their courses online. And so we've partnered with a curriculum provider for that one. But then we also have a flex program. And in the flex program, those are students who need just a little bit more assistance in the past, pre-COVID. Uh, those are students that maybe you'd meet with once or twice a week in a Starbucks or you know somewhere to give them assistance. And that curriculum is written by our teachers. And then those students also have the option of joining in on the virtual program if there's courses they want to take in there. So those students are really able to have flexibility <laughs> in what they choose to, to meet their needs. So some students still say, like, like paper, you know, we'll say we have some curriculum still that we'll mail out if that's what students need. Again, it's just flexibility. Would that, would that flex program sort of be analogous to, um, a blended program. I was, I was going to say it is the closest to a blended learning program. 
So let's talk about the virtual one first. Mm -hmm. um, and w what what are the similarities and differences between that and the way that you're seeing traditional schools, regular schools kind of uh, step in? And then the follow-up question is going to be, what would it take for uh, a traditional school to sort of adopt some of those virtual practices that you guys have kind of figured out over the last several years? I think we're seeing it now. The thing about our virtual program is, you know, it is online, which of course is what schools are doing right now. And the difference is that there's not a time when 25 students get online to meet. So when there is delivery of content, you have video, you have text, you have interactive tools that students can use to engage with the text. But again, there's never a time when all the students in the Spanish class are, are getting online together. I think that's probably the biggest difference between our program and any of the schools, traditional schools right now that are trying to uh, function in this environment. We what have does office that hours, which is a lot of schools do. Um, in, in terms of kids collaborating, do, do the mm -hmm. kids kind of do that on their own volition or um, are it's projects or work set up for the kids to, to engage in, right. in a collaborative way? It depends on the course. So in some, uh, you'll see things like, you know, we're going to get in a discussion board and, and meet via groups and, and plan out projects and such. Um, some students do it on their own. We have some students in areas where they go to, I guess it'd be like an after school program where they will meet. And so they'll do a collaboration there. So it's a, a partner that we'll have. So it, it takes various forms. Of course, right now with COVID, they're not doing that. But right. in the past, you know, they were able to, to have that opportunity as well. I mean, I, honestly, Mike, the, the, the key here is that we adapt to whatever our students need. And that's what is, um, I think, the struggle with traditional schools, not because they don't want to do it, but I think a lot of it's just the logistics. You know, when you have 20,000 students or, or such, you know, in a district, it's like, how do you make this work? And so we have that, that freedom of, of being smaller, where we can pivot in a moment and say, well, this is what these students need. Let's make it happen. Where would the break point be? Um, there's a lot of research um, that goes back quite a few years that shows a sweet spot for a high school, for example, at about 650 kids. Um, right. Flexibility with the master schedule, but still small enough that uh, there's the ability to be nimble and a, a little more innovative than say, you know, a, a two or a 3000 student high school. The, right. the same thing would extend to a middle school. Um, but what do you, what do you see as the impediments to a, a regular school kind of adopting some of those practices to make it more individualized? I think part of the problem too, is the way credentials are right now. Yeah, I think we have, uh, I, yeah, I taught middle school and high school, so I am single subject credentialed, but that can be a hindrance, you know, when you're always scheduling kids that way, because we have the flexibility of having both content area teachers and teachers of record that gives us more freedom in terms of how we group students, who's, who's monitoring those students, who's following them on their journey. You know, our, our teachers of record will stay with a student for multiple years. So we have some teachers of record that'll say, I've, I've got students that, that span, you know, kindergarten through eighth grade wow. and putting them on the journey. And, and can you imagine, I mean, it's, it's like somebody in your life who just cares about you and has seen you grow and is able to say, Hey, remember when this, when this happened a few years ago, remember how you overcame this last year. So 
it's that constant cheerleader, that mentor by your side, I think, which makes a huge difference. Yes, they have their content teachers. Yes, they're still getting academics at the level they need to. But I really think that that's part of the difference, that we have that ability to, to really take this journey alongside the students and, and make sure that they're finding what they need to be successful and getting involved in their passions and talking to them because we know that they've been cheerleading for years or, or we know that they go horseback riding and, and really being able to engage with them just builds a, a relationship. And we know relationships are key. I think it's really hard. And I, I would see students all the time in middle school struggle with that lack of relationship because in K-5 or K-6, depending on where you came from, teachers just, there was less of you, right? We had more opportunity to get to know you. And by the time middle school and high school, it's like, I just have to take these courses. I have to do this work. And so our teachers work really well together to really stay on top of what a child's doing and give them that support while also giving them that freedom. That's one of the key components of uh, the the sort of best example of um, a high school that would that works really really well and has for a long time for kids is Science Leadership Academy in in Philadelphia, part of Philadelphia City Schools. Chris Lehman runs it, um, and they have advisors for for kids, uh, and right. they meet on a regular basis. But those advisors stay with the kids through the course of their experience. So for all four years of high school, they know the kid, they know the family, they know what's going on. And if there's anything that's, um, that's happening with a student that's going to impact their academics, that's the person that would know it. And then they communicate with the rest of that student's teachers. Um, and, and that personal sort of relationship really works well. Uh, and I think it's one of the things that we've always advocated for and schools can never figure out how to make it work. But having that personal relationship with an adult uh, for a longer period of time to me just seems like a no brainer. Well, and there's a lot of research too around the fact that young adults need to have, uh, I think it's five adults in their lives that care about them beyond your parents, right? We're talking, you know, coach or a pastor or, you know, right. next door neighbor or somebody, right. Um, to invest in them. They say that that's a huge difference in how they succeed in life, that ability. And also those lead to networking opportunities. So if you just think about it in that terms of if there's somebody who has known this child for years, how many doors can they open for that child as well as they get older? Mm. Yeah. And I think that's an area. I, I hope that traditional ed, as we embrace what's happening right now, that they start to think outside the box a little bit about that. I was talking to a lot of friends last year who said, I actually am getting to know my students better during this time of COVID than I did before because they were finding ways. They were finding that they were having more one-on-one office hours, right? Or even my daughter, who was a senior last year, she'd show up to office hours and maybe only four other kids showed up. And so she was able to have a really good conversation with a teacher that she never got to have in the classroom because there were too many of them. And so those are the types of things that I'm really hoping traditional ed sees is I'm seeing office hours built into these schedules and that excites me because I'm hoping that that becomes this way of really forming a a better connection, a stronger bond with students and really getting to know them as individuals and not a seat in a classroom. And I know teachers want to do that anyway. I'm not, you know, begrudging or saying that teachers aren't doing it, but I think having structures in place that promote it and provide opportunity is going to make it easier. Yeah, and the structure of of this virtual learning where we've sort of um, ratcheted down the workload in in terms of 
just how the volume of stuff that we're asking mm -hmm. kids to do um, creates a little more time for the teacher to actually do something besides deliver instruction or pass on information. And the kids become a little more autonomous in terms of taking on that responsibility. And that shift, I, I agree, is really, really important. Um, and I think it's one of the the most important things that schools could do to to take advantage of making those relationships while we've got this distance learning thing going on. And um, building agency to teach students how to take charge of their own life. You know, I mean, we, we struggle so much between compliance and independence in schools. You know, we want students to comply. You know, you need to be at school at this time. You need to have this stuff turned in. And I think now we're seeing that shift towards agency. What is going to make that child want to log in to that Zoom call or want to turn in this work when, when they're at home, when they could play a video game or could watch TV? Like, so now we have to think about things in a completely different way. And I know with my daughter, she really struggled because in, in the spring, you know, the assignments were due and, and she was starting to learn that she didn't have to do all the assignments every day. You know, she was able now to have some control and to say, I really need to study for my AP Calc exam. I'll get to my English assignment a little bit later because I'm already doing really well there. And that was hard for her at first. She felt like she was letting down the teacher. But instead, we were having a conversation about her starting to understand what her needs were and where she needed to prioritize her investment of time. I think is huge. Like that's, that's what she needs for life. That's the projects that your boss gives you. You know, when you're looking at your desk and saying, which one do I tackle and how do I approach this? She was learning that now that I don't think she'd ever had an opportunity to learn before because she was always just worried about the compliance feature. Right. Yeah. And that compliance thing is so ingrained in the traditional K-12 education program that I think it, we've even lost awareness of, of how deep that goes into everything that's there. Um, I hear teachers talk about concern for students who you know, may not check in uh, when they're uh, doing their class session, be it Zoom or Google Meet or whatever they're right. setting up. Uh, and then they want to know, well, what sort of, uh, uh, can we deduct points uh, right. if students don't show up? Or, you know, how do we, how do we deal with, quote, those students who aren't going to participate? Right. And my and reaction the is, of the matter is well, yeah, we don't know why them. they're not participating. Yeah. I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> well, right. and they, they probably were the, they probably weren't participating in class either. They just were there yeah. right i mean it's they not were, like this is a new phenomena the challenge the is we don't have the, the physical compliance component anymore sit back right. be the gray guy be in the back of the class you know and either daydream work on something else act busy don't disrupt anything just be the gray guy and well, uh, I, I tell my online students at, at you know for usd i also teach for national university now and i tell them if you think online classes are easier, you're, you're sadly mistaken. You can't sit in the back of the room in online learning. You are responsible every week for the content because yep. there's, there's something, there's a deliverable, there's, whether it's a discussion board question, whether it's a project, an assignment, you're always responsible for the information. Whereas when you sit in the back of the room, you put your head down on the days that you don't know anything and hope that the teachers don't call on you and you might get away with it. Yeah. So, you know, on that, you have that, that shift as well, but I'm fascinated right now just on, on Twitter and such about people trying to figure out what rules should be in place for online learning in terms of, 
you know, uh, where should the student be sitting? Should their cameras be on? Should they have dress code rules? Uh, are they allowed to eat during the meetings? What if the dog comes into the room? You know, all these things that I think are so outside of our locus of control. And yet I think it's a safety to say, well, let's see, let's try and control as much as we can instead of really just kind of embracing the the ambiguity, the, <laughs> the novelty, the newness, all these things that if we're open, we might discover some pretty awesome things about our students, about ourselves, about learning. But it's hard. It's hard to let go of those. It is. And, you know, the thing that comes to my mind is that in the teacher's mind is that same compliance sort of paradigm because there's a perception that we've got to account for X number of minutes and we have to account for some authentic reflection of performance. Uh, you know, kids got to do X amount of work for me to give them an A, for example. Um, and um, well, it, it's also, it goes back to the don't smile before Christmas kind of right. mentality, yeah. right? The, that was what I was taught as a new approach. teacher. And that's, you know, when you're, when you're trying to figure out as, you know, as a teacher, how to manage your classroom, um, in that physical space, those were the kind of things that we were taught, you know, you, you use compliance and you use, um, rules, uh, to manage that space. But when you shift to online, you know, all those traditional tools uh, that we used as teachers kind of go out the window, but, but teachers are struggling with what should it look like? I think they're taking that analog and trying to apply it to virtual Right. and it doesn't translate. Uh, basically what you get is kids who aren't going to tune in. Well, and we also gave them no time to make that transition and that's to no fault of theirs. You yeah. know, we said, um, Hey guys, it's Friday and there's COVID. So starting on Monday, you're teaching online. Yeah. How many teachers had never embraced the digital tools before who are now forced to, or just, you know, teachers are like, this has worked for me for all these years and now I have to switch it up. You know, it's, it's hard. I, I think of, you know, um, we hired a, a guy to be kind of an accountant and he's been using Excel for 20 plus years and we're a Google district. And we said, could you use Google sheets? And he, he laughed at me. He said, Laura, this is like a really hard transition for me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I thought, well, it's just numbers and a box. I don't understand. But, you know, this is such so much bigger than that. But, uh, you know, we just, we know what we know. Teachers tend to teach how they were taught. You know, we yep. have to break out of that mold. And so it, it's scary. Like, yeah. I, I really, I feel for them. I was it's... so grateful that I had shifted before this happened because I was thinking about that. I'm like, oh, I cannot imagine having to make this shift with two days notice or with one week of PD and, and districts have put out some great PDs. Some districts have put out none, you know, and you, you just see the struggle of the teachers who are trying to figure it out. Yeah. Well, it was, I mean, you know, back in March, it was, it was crazy to expect that shift to happen. And I think teachers, you know, did, everybody did the best they could. And what's, what's, um, I don't know, frustrating, I guess the, would be the right word. Uh, we've now, we've had several months to, as a state, I'll say as a state to plan for, you know, what's coming. And I think, you know, we spent a lot of that time not knowing how we were going to open. So planning for multiple scenarios Mm -hmm. instead of really digging into how do we do online well as a state, um, you know, dedicating the resources and the, uh, the, the time that we would need to make that happen. 
you know, most districts don't have a lot of professional development days built into their calendars right. where they could spend a week with teachers before school starts um, to, to do the kind of really, uh, per, you know, heavy lifting with the professional development to, because it takes, it's not just teaching tools. It is, ta it's, it's, it's kind of relearning. It's right. reframing yeah. what right. education looks like. It's a whole mindset shift. Yeah. I mean, think about how hard it is to break a habit that you have. Right. Right. Just one simple habit. When this started, what did they say? Don't touch your face. And all of a sudden I became aware that that's all I do is touch my face. <laughs> exactly. And it would seem like something so simple. And yet it was, I still touch my face, right? It's really hard. So then to tell people to completely shift your way of thinking about education, about learning and do it quickly. And then, like you said, uh, Andrew, I think. We spent all summer wishing and hoping that schools would reopen and not enough time providing opportunities for districts and schools and teachers and staff to learn how to do this. Because it would, regardless of whether we opened distance or not, there was no reason why we couldn't have trained people for it. Right. You know, and, and, and not trained, you know, is it's, it's probably the wrong word, but at least provide opportunities mm -hmm. for people to continue to learn all summer because at some point, there's probably going to be something like this, right? Whether it's blended, hybrid. Right. I mean, I, to keep going. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a smart bet to think that we would be online at some point. But, right. you know, we get the realities of not having a budget till the end of June and then you're in July and then we don't have right. guidance that, that comes out until mid-July. So, you know, rather than just kind of uh, very early getting clear direction, we were kind of in this, uh, you know, wait and, and, and see what we were going to have to work with, what resources we were going to have. And I was actually, I was hoping that they would actually reduce the number of student contact days because that, that would have been an easy way for us to get additional time with teachers. And right. really, I mean, I'd rather have, I don't know, Mike, I think you were talking to me about it, right? You'd, you'd rather have 160 quality days um, of, of yeah. learning, right? Yeah. And I, I am absolutely convinced that um, 180 days of what we've traditionally done, if we took 20 days and really focused on good pedagogical frameworks and worked with teachers to develop um, to develop a, a, a set of projects and a, and a set of approaches to work with kids in whatever content area or grade level that they work on, you would get more quality educational bang for your buck in 160 days than you currently get in 180 days. Yeah, most uh, definitely. But, you know, for us to do that, um, the, the, the structures and the, back to that word compliance, the okay. expectations that, that schools have to match uh, from a legislative standpoint, you'd have to be extremely innovative to pull that off. I think right. you could do it, um, but it, it would it would take a radical change in scheduling um, and a radical change in, in how we work with our kids. Well, we haven't even talked about the whole point, uh, the whole aspect of the equity piece. Yeah, I mean, right. we could sit here for hours and talk about pedagogical shifts. And, and let's say, uh, miraculously, we wake up Monday morning and, and every teacher has, has made this mindset shift and they're all on board. We yeah. still have some serious issues, not just in our state, but in our country, in regards to equity. 
Yes. And when California came out and said, hey, we're throwing all this money out. And so what it, I think their word was it's it's resolved effective immediately. Yeah. I thought you don't really understand what the problem here is. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I could ship a Chromebook to every child across the state of California and that's not going to fix the equity issue. Yeah. Well, you know, and, we, and we haven't shipped a Chromebook to every child in California. No, no, no. I was gonna, we can't even do that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, even if I get all these teachers on board, we still have to tackle that issue. What and that's, again, you know, that's, that's one of the things that for us, students come to us, right? Students say, this is, this is how I want to, to do school. And they sign up with us. So in that sense, we already have a foot in the door. You know, what, well, what do you need? And let's make this happen. Um, whereas uh, traditional schools, they don't have that. No, I was well, going to was... built for it and they don't no. have a conversation. So being able to sort of match uh, a list of expectations. I mean, there, there's a certain level of performance to earn a high school diploma, for example, that w- it, any reasonable person would say, OK, here's here's the kind of stuff that we we would expect for somebody who's a high school graduate. Right. Uh, how we get from where a student is to what that is is highly, highly variable. But the first thing that we tend to do in schools is we tend to make that as uniform as possible. And what goes out is the variable of time. Different kids learn at different rates. The variable of uh, background socioeconomic issues, uh, challenges outside the school day that impede a student. Not every kid shows up first day in your class with the same uh, the same academic capabilities. So there are some deficits in some kids that we have to recognize and deal with. Um, but it know, goes, it goes more than it's, it's even before that, Mike, it's now we're faced with how do we even start the engagement process with, um, with our students and families who don't have access, you know, are in a position where school is, may not be the most important thing on their mind at the moment. How do we as a school system, because we've been, you know, we're set up with the expectation that people just bring their kids to school and then, and right. then we educate them. But in this situation, there's no school to bring your kids to. And so then what do we do as a system? What's our responsibility then to make sure, and it's actually in the legislation and a lot of districts are going to have to figure out how they address this, but you know, we're, we're now in a position yeah. where we have to ensure that families have access to that experience and that, that learning opportunity, which is, um, I would say an order of magnitude more than we've really been responsible for in the past. I, I think we definitely need to be doing it. And it, it goes, Laura, like you said, your folks come to you, they seek you out because right. they have a need, right? You know, our families who don't engage with us, we had several last year, who, you know, because of life, school mm-hmm. was not the priority. And right. because of access challenges and all those kinds of things. And, you know, there are districts that have many, many more families in those situations. And now right. the challenge is, you know, how what what are districts going to do uh, yeah. to, to make I, that I connection and get kids in? Because the first step is you got to get them online and, 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 and have access, right. particularly now. Or they, they don't even have the opportunity to start. Right. I think there's two things that, that are part of that. Um, w- one of them is, I think we have the people that could make that bridge. 
you know, like you said, Andrew, um, families show up uh, and um, kind of approach the elite academy and and that sort of environment, even if they wanted to go virtually. And it's like, okay, this is where I'm at. This is what's going on. Here's what I need. And then um, you guys, Laura, kind of say, okay, this is what we can do. And here's how we can match that. That bridge could be made by the counselors, the administrators, uh, the other adults that are on campus that aren't uh, front level teachers and and create those bridges in a regular school. Because, I, I mean, a counselor in a, in a regular school day is dealing with uh, a load of students and scheduling and all that kind of stuff um, and discipline. And you know, there's, a, there's a whole litany of things that they have to do that preclude them from kind of doing that. But a lot of that is the, the, the load kind of goes down a little bit, right? So why not, why not create a program where you go approach those families and say, okay, this is what we need educationally. Where are you uh, in terms of what's going on and how can we create a bridge to make that work? And Laura, I'm kind of interested in your take on that. Um, and I was going to, uh, the the question is going to be in two parts. Sure. Uh, if 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 you were to set up in a sort of traditional school district, um, a plan for doing exactly that, making the transition from where schools have been pre COVID to uh, this virtual environment, this distance learning model. Uh, in two aspects, what would the curriculum look like and the, and the pedagogy? Right. But more importantly, how would you recommend schools approach making that bridge and meeting the needs of families that couldn't do the, okay, sit down for six hours in front of screen and here's your schedule and uh, we'll, we'll just, we'll make it the regular school, uh, we'll just do it via Zoom. Right. So I think... Um I mean, I think curriculum is probably the easier question to answer, which is kind of funny. But, you know, I think we're seeing it now. We're seeing a lot of project-based learning. Um, You know, opportunities for students to to dive into content at a more meaningful level, which keeps them engaged, uh, you know, to bring some sort of piece of themselves into the work. Um, I'm seeing teachers who are collaborating with each other so that instead of saying it's, it's science and then math, but I'm seeing teachers now say, what can we build together so students are able to learn on both? But I mean, all that goes to your bigger question is how do we get them there, right? I mean, the words yeah. of Hamilton, right? You got to be in the room where it happens. How do we get them in the room? Um, and, and I think if districts are just now asking that question, they're at a huge disadvantage. You know, I, I think that, that question started in March. I think it continues. I, I don't know if it's, if it's one-on-one. We do a lot of one-on-one calls. Uh, we, we hired people just to make calls. You know, how are you doing? What do you need? How can I support you? Uh, you know, send postcards. I don't know, you know, but I think, um, you know, finding ways to connect. We have a, um, uh, what do you call it, project management type of board, kind of like a Trello, where we keep track of every contact that's made to students and families. Who's called when? Who's texted? Who's sent an email? Uh, we send emails every week about other opportunities. And that's the other thing. Yes, we're here to educate but what else can we provide? 
So we've done webinars about how to uh, stay connected to your teenage child. We, we hired somebody to provide that session for parents. We spent the summer with um, California Parks, their ports program, where they do those virtual field trips. We've right. had one or two a week, and we've had 50 to 60 people sign up for every one. They're just looking for something, right? Something to do, but it's a, a low threat. They don't have to know math. They don't have to be able to help their child write an essay. It's just come on for an hour and, and learn about Harbor Seals is what we did on Friday. So how are we reducing that, that level of stress for families? Because it's not just that, uh, and you're talking about, you know, not everybody is successful or whatnot, but for some, school's not safe. School wasn't safe for them as a child for whatever reason. So how are we showing them that we can be more? And that's where I think we have to start thinking outside the box. And I've said this to some of the districts here who have called me, what supports are you providing for families? You know, and beyond helping them help their child with a third grade math worksheet, what are you doing? Mm. How are you checking in on them? You know, are you sending out the list of where they can get free meals or, or um, you know, food from, from food banks? Like, what are we providing for them? I think we yeah. just have to keep those. And, and that shouldn't be just because of COVID, right? We should do those things anyway. But, uh, you know, how are we telling teachers uh, how to be aware of stress in the homes? It's one thing to look for child abuse in a classroom. It's another thing now when kids are on a screen. But then beyond that, how are we helping teachers with their own self-care? So we started, so we have a summer program. So we tried gamifying summer PD and summer responsibilities for teachers. And one of them is just self-care. So one of their points is, what did you do to practice self-care this week? Has nothing to do with students or learning. What are you doing to take care of you? Right. And making that personal connection. And, and teachers have been so grateful for that. Thank you for reminding me that I need to take care of myself too. <laughs> There it is. Yeah. We have yoga classes at eight in the morning on Thursdays. That's provided by Sports Academy out of LA. And that's open to staff and teachers and students. Come to yoga. Yeah. I, I just think we have to think different now. I think for sure. I think a lot of people, those are all great, great ideas. So I'm taking notes right now. But um, I think a lot of people are still in the denial of phase of the COVID reality. I, I think yes. a lot of people still think we're coming back and things are going to be normal. And it's hard to think about this being a semi kind of uh, not permanent state, but right. like this year is going to be different. It's going to be a COVID right. year. It's not going to be the way right. it's been. And right. it's not going to be the way it is in the future, but it, it's going to be the way it is this year. And I think we just right. all have to keep reminding ourselves and our communities and our, you know, parents and, and everyone that this is not going to be a normal year. And that has well, to be okay. And, and the ramifications are going to be long lasting. Yes. You know, right now we have some safeties in place by the government to protect families, right? We, we've uh, put a hold on evictions, right? We've, the, the federal unemployment's done this week. Like there's all these things that are going to start like just having this, this long-term effect. So whether you want to deny the, the COVID reality we're facing or not, we still have families in need. We have trauma. We do. And we have to acknowledge it. And we, we have trauma with our staff too. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that. And we work with our staff because I have, I think they said teachers are most likely to marry policemen. There's a strong correlation really? between those, those two fields. I was reading something about that a few weeks ago, and I was thinking about that. I thought, 
Look at all the stress cops are under right now. Yeah. And so if your if your spouse is in a field that is also uh, front lines, right? And you're also trying to educate or maybe have young children at home. Like our, our staff is under a lot of stress. Right. I sat in a class with the UCSD professor a, a couple months ago and I laughed because partway through his three-year-old runs into the room, right? Like that's stuff like a, a, a professor with tenure who's published all over the place is not used to having to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> and then the look on his face was like horror. You know, like he was just, you could tell he was so embarrassed. And, and it was actually like a relief to say, you're just like the rest of us, right? We're all trying to make it through, but I just think we have to be be mindful of that. And that's where, like you said, um, I think it was Mike, you said, how do we free up counselors to provide those supports? And what's in the community that we can tap into? Or what kind of community could we build yes. to, to kind of I do that? that. Well, I, I'm just, I'm really curious about your, your police officer thing. I have said, um, and uh, Laura, you're a, you're an army veteran. Mm -hmm. uh, there are so many similarities between education and, uh, uh military um, and and their various missions, um, right. while on the surface they seem like almost opposite, but the reality is that what the military has to deal with is something that's extremely volatile, very uncertain, extremely dynamic. It's complex and it's mm -hmm. ambiguous. There's no mm -hmm. clean answers to anything. And as Correct. soon as you you get a mission order uh, and you make a plan. The very first rule in the military is every plan goes to crap when the first bullet flies. That's the truth. Um, in education, it's even under normal circumstances, it's extremely volatile, it's uncertain, it's complex, and mm -hmm. it's extremely ambiguous. There are no clean answers to any of the problems that educators are expected to do. And I think the, the mindset between a special forces operator in an extremely dynamic and kinetic environment is very, very close to the mindset that a teacher or a school administrator needs to have because everything shifts and whatever plan you make, it's going to go to crap as soon as kids and teachers show up on campus. And the reality right now is even worse. Right. Um, but the part of the difference is in the military is we, we train for that. Exactly. Right. They, they put us out in the field and they say, you're supposed to head this way. And then they lob stuff at you. So you have to figure out a different route. Yeah. But in our teacher ed program, we wrote lesson plans and we were told that they were beautiful. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nobody said, be aware, this might completely crash on your face. And what are you going to do? And, and uh, remember when technology started and teachers get so frustrated because you had to make multiple plans. You know, yeah. I was in a one to one program and there were days that I'd say, I made this plan and now it's not working. I'd get so frustrated. Right. Because. It wasn't working, and so right. here we are, you know. And and you were you were given the the mission, and it's it's not going to happen the way you thought it was going to happen. Right. Well, and I think so, for school planning, you know, we the, how often have you been at a at a school or a district where you basically at the end of the year you put the binder on the shelf, you yeah. go on summer break, you come back a couple of weeks before school, you pull the binder off the shelf, and you run through it all again, right? That's right. Well, that, that's the planning kind of mindset that we that I've seen yeah. in, in, in schools for, for many, many right. years. And we've run up against a place where the binder just isn't relevant anymore. There, right. That's the, the difference between the 15 year teaching veteran and the teacher that's been a first year teacher 15 times in a row. Right. Um, 
And well, and because people assume that schools are eventually going to open, they're trying to make the binder work. Yeah. So instead of looking at master schedules in a completely different method, right, which is what we have the freedom to do, we're still trying in traditional ed to look at master schedules the same way we always have because eventually kids are going to be back on campus and we don't want to have to redo it then. Yeah. So that's where I think we're facing this this real crux in the road of wanting to maintain those same structures for the eventual return instead of saying, let's just throw all that out. Let's rethink well, this. Maybe it never heard, goes back to that structure. You heard it here first, people. We're virtual now and we're going to be virtual for a very long time. Like Andrew, like you said, it's a COVID school year. Uh, mm -hmm. Everywhere we see schools open, we see them close. Uh, yes, with Indiana, the very first day that they opened, very first they had day, COVID. Mm -hmm. we saw it in Israel where the transmission rate was below one percent, and there's virtually nowhere in America where the transmission rate is is below one percent. It's right. higher everywhere. Um, uh, I. I think I shared with you, Andrew, the, the article from the New York Times, the, some professors in uh, the University of Texas in Austin developed this uh, algorithm to predict based on the testing and hospitalization data in a given county, what are the odds of uh, students showing up the first day you open school? Like if you open school today, how many of those kids would be infected with COVID? Uh, I looked for our county. Uh, Laura, I looked for San Diego County. Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew's up in Santa Clara County. I looked at that one. And for uh, there are no places where there will be zero kids showing up, even for a school of under 500 kids. Um, right. that, that We're going to get them. And as soon as that happens, it's going to be like Indiana. We're going to have to shut them down again. So we play this yo-yo game, or we develop a really good, uh, way to handle this on a virtual basis and then um, in the the kind of blended or uh, what's the word that you use flex is that the mm -hmm. right word that's ours yes yeah wouldn't you think that would be a better model than trying to shoehorn what we did pre-covid into either a virtual or a blended kind of environment well i agree and to look at every teacher as being that that flex or that blended teacher. We have to start stop saying, well, who's going to teach in the classroom and who's going to teach online? That is a conversation I hear a lot about and I'm I'm seeing districts up here asking families to commit to, you know, a full year mm -hmm. of online. Right. Without right. the option to go, you know, decide to come back in in person or or not and you know, you don't know what's going to happen one week to the next. I think I think it's really hard to ask families to make that kind of year-long commitment. But okay. I understand why they're doing it, because the system sure. right. doesn't have that flexibility built into it. Right. I asked a, a district down here that was doing that, where they said, yeah, we're going to have teachers in person and we're going to have teachers online. And so they were asking me to look at their plan. And, and I said, so is this like the Hunger Games? And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, is this like, may the odds be ever in your favor? If I get to teach online, I'm safe. But if I have to teach in person, I'm risking COVID, <laughs> you know? And they said, well, I hadn't thought about it that way. I said, well, and then what happens when the, the kids who are in person get sick and have to be online? Are you going to start shifting the amount of teachers that are covering them online? Or if the kid who's exactly. online, now the parent, now the parent got a different job or they really can't support their kid at home. So maybe they don't want to, but they really have to send their kid back to school. If online learning is different than traditional, are they going to be behind? Are they going to be ahead? 
you know, who's going to support that? Like, and I'm not, I, I told him, I said, I felt bad because I have no answers. I really don't. I wish I did. But are we even asking the right questions? Are we at least throwing them on the table to say, what are we doing here? Well, and I don't think people are asking those kind of questions when they're developing their plans. I, well, from what I'm seeing is they're, they're doing a very surface level pass. They develop a plan. Mm -hmm. It looks, you know, oh, the schedule looks like it'll work. We've got teachers. We'll assign kids here and here. And I don't see people asking those follow-up questions and really diving in. And, you know, what I like to do, and I, I, it's probably driving people crazy at this point, is ask questions until it falls apart. Because at least then right. you know where it falls apart. You, you know you, where the right. pressure points are and the, and the right. points of failure are. Right. But again, I think well, that's... Well, that's, that's a design thinking background, I think, too. Mm -hmm. You know, is, is always asking why. Right. And it kind of follows that same thing, right? You just keep digging and digging and digging and digging until either it completely falls apart or you think, you know what? I think I've got it. Yeah. But that takes time and that takes a lot of empathy and um, ambiguity, being comfortable with the ambiguity. And that's just not where traditional education likes to be. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow we have to impart more of that military special forces kind of mindset right um in in our educational sort of vocabulary um and well, we got about a week to do it so um <laughs> and 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 we're running out of time and if i let mike keep talking he'll talk forever so mike right now's your time well, to start wrapping it up stuff, it man. is all excellent stuff but um go ahead it and is. finish your thought and then we can wrap things up Actually, I, I think I finished my thought. Um, if I if I get into any more detail, it will be here for a long, long time. But um, <laughs> Laura, when when you're working with schools, um, where do you start? You talking about just when people call me and say help? Yes. Yeah. So a district's wrestling with this kind of stuff. I think right. there are aspects of what you've done with. Um, the elite academy in mm -hmm. part, but also the other work that you've done in teacher preparation and that sort of thing. Um, you know, wh where, where do you start with a district? What's, what's say the first and the second order, uh, imperatives that districts should be working on? What questions should they be asking? In the words of Simon Sinek, you need to start with your why, you know, and it's not, we have COVID. But the why is bigger than that. You know, what what are you hoping to accomplish? Like, why do you want students to be learning? Why do you want teachers to be doing this? Because I think when you get to the core of the why, then you can start talking about the what. And we're just so focused right now on the what that we forget the why. And so when we talk about, well, you know, our, our, our goal is to have students who are, are independent, who are self-starters, whatever it is. Okay, great. Now let's start talking about your plan. Right? And then... Uh, please understand that I am going to put 5,000 holes in your plan, not because I don't like you, but because I hate holes in plans. Um, and so, you know, I, I think you, you have to find that person that you can trust to put holes in plans. And too many people now are just, they find the yes people. Yeah. And so I think that's key. I think every district right now should have somebody that they can call that's going to put as many holes as possible in their plans. And maybe some of those holes stay because that's just the nature of the beast. That's fine. 
Yeah, as long as you know that there's a hole there and you continue yeah. to and you've got it, you know. some yeah. sort of contingency in your back pocket to to kind of deal with what happens if that hole becomes a really big deal. But that's mm-hmm. the flexibility and the response to, you know, ambiguity and uncertainty that like you said, Laura, we're just not prepared for. Right. So start with your why, develop mm-hmm. your plan. The yes. plan has to aim at that why which that's a huge pedagogical conversation there but it is it is one for another day (laughs) but i think that's really really important so we should put that in the show notes andrew number one schools need to challenge their why okay i'll let you type the show notes this time okay I appreciate you both. I'm, I'm glad we're having these conversations. They're so important. And they're not going to be solved anytime soon. But having the conversations is the first first place to start. Yeah, definitely. You know, the, the, and the cool thing about talking to you, Laura, is that you've got this sort of alternative perspective from your work with Elite Academy. But you're also such a good sort of clear thinker um, about these topics that the insights that you provide, I think, are going to be worth a lot to the three or four people that actually listen to this podcast. <laughs> uh, well, you're welcome to the three or four people yeah. that listen to the podcast. <laughs> and where, uh, so after they hear this podcast, um, where can they contact you? Um, so uh, I'm on Twitter all the time, L Spencer EDD on Twitter. Um, my blog is laurakspencer.com, which is also which, by my the way, you should Gmail check address. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, anytime. And, you know, I, I'm lucky to work for a boss who completely values um, education. She's an educator as well. And she has always said, Laura, help out whoever needs help. So, you know, I do encourage people to reach out just to have some a different view, a different voice. Nice. Well, we appreciate having you on today. And uh, thank you. Great talking to you. Yes, you thank too. you. Mike, always good talking to you. We've actually got so, a, a streak going. It's surprising. Yeah, once again, we've talked about some big issues in education and didn't come up with any answers. That's right. Um, Our track record is intact. Yeah, but thanks to Laura, we've we've actually pointed in the direction of some answers could be out there. It's just going to be kind of hard to go that way. Well, nobody said this was going to be easy. So, (laughs) With that, uh, we'll wrap the show up and we'll talk to you later. See you on the next episode. All right. Music, welcome to the show by Kevin McLeod.